Suella Braverman has been out on the airwaves promoting her new immigration bill, and you'll never guess what. You'll never guess. She couldn't stop lying. And we'll be taking you through those lies to justify what you probably already know is a pretty appalling um, bill. We've been talking about it the last couple of shows, lots more detail today. Um, I will be speaking to an asylum and immigration expert, um, and I'm joined throughout the show by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, fresh off Politics Live, where we talked about um, this very bill, and it was really good to watch the Tory MP really not have anything to say for himself um, when it comes to the moral bankruptcy of, of this bill. Uh, so, yeah, ready to. I'm ready to debrief on the show today about what that was like. On less hostile terrain. We do have uh, a really good clip of, of Dahlia from Politics Live coming up. We're also talking Gary Lineker um, and BBC Bias and a pretty dramatic SMB leadership hustings. Incredibly brutal. First story. The row over Suella Braverman's so-called illegal immigration bill has continued today. If passed, the bill will allow the state to imprison asylum seekers who arrive here irregularly for 28 days without bail or trial before deporting them to a third country like Rwanda. After that, they'll be banned from ever settling in the UK, even if they were fleeing persecution or war. This morning, Braverman ramped up the rhetoric as she tried to win over voters. She began with an article in the Daily Mail writing this. In the face of today's global migration crisis, yesterday's laws are simply not fit for purpose. There are 100 million people displaced around the world and likely billions more eager to come here if possible. Billions more eager to come here if possible. They are already coming here in their tens of thousands and they will not stop until we've made it crystal clear. Arrive illegally and you will be liable for detention and swiftly removed to your home country or to a safe third country like Rwanda. So she said there, there are likely, likely billions, billions more eager to come here. She thinks billions of people want to come to the UK. Now, that's the kind of ridiculous claim we're used to seeing in the mail, but not every journalist was willing to let this nonsense pass them by. Susanna Reid challenged Braverman on GMB. 45,000 uh, in boat crossings in the past year. You say there are 100 million people displaced around the world and likely billions more eager to come here if possible. On what planet is that likely? And how is that not inflammatory language? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for the invitation to join you this morning. Uh, there are potentially 100 million people around the world who are currently displaced. That's an estimate provided for by the UN. Uh, that's people who are being displaced because of conflict, persecution, uh, environmental factors, people who are on the move. Many of them are heading to the United Kingdom. We saw over 45,000 people come here on small boats alone last year. This is an unsustainable level of a problem that we've got, and okay. it's now Sorry, necessary just, for us to take okay. steps so to there stop are, it. There are 100 million displaced people worldwide. That is true. Only a quarter of them have left their own country. So even the 100 million figure doesn't hold up let alone the billions that you have flagged in the Daily Mail this morning? I think we can look at, uh, we can argue about the numbers of 
the millions of people around the world it's who would like to come in I'm the sorry, United it's not Kingdom. an argument. Only 26 million have even left their own country. And 45,000 were, were in boats coming over to the UK. Yes, so yes, what we're dealing with here number. is tens of thousands, isn't it? What, what we're dealing with is an unsustainably high number on any of count thousands. of people coming here illegally, not just in the last year, but actually over the last few years, since 2018, 85,000 people came here on small boats. If you're suggesting to me that that's an appropriate and acceptable level, then I would respectfully disagree with you. I am not I don't disputing think it is. that I, it's an ethical issue whether, whether you think it's acceptable or not, but it is a fact that we are dealing with tens of thousands and you have used the word billions. And I think that you people want you to explain the justification for the use of the word billions when it is a fact that there's only tens of thousands have made their way here on the boats. The moment that made me just go, oh my God. So Suella Bradman said, we can argue about the numbers all you like. You literally wrote in a paper, this wasn't a slip of the tongue, you wrote in a newspaper intentionally that there were billions of people eager to come here. You think one in eight people in the world wants to come to, to Britain, this relatively stagnant economy um, on the Western side of, of Europe. Obviously, lots of people do want to come here. Not that many people, right? And we should be giving asylum to more people than we currently do. Let's talk about the numbers, though, since they have been brought up. As Bravman admitted, according to the UN High Commission on Refugees, there are 100 million displaced people around the world. And as Reid says, only around 25 million have left their country. So the majority are internally displaced. Now, of those 25 million who were displaced outside of their country, 69% of them are hosted by neighbouring countries. That's about 17 million people, leaving around 8 million people living elsewhere in the world. As we've mentioned many times on this show, the UK's current role in providing asylum is distinctly underwhelming. In 2021, we took 56,000 asylum seekers, far fewer than other wealthy countries like the USA, Germany, France and Spain. Since Braverman's immigration bill was announced, international refugee organisations and human rights groups have lined up to say it's in breach of international law. And even Braverman herself cast doubt on its legality, telling MPs there was a greater than 50% chance it would break international law, and including this note with the bill itself. I am unable to make a statement that, in my view, the provisions of the Illegal Migration Bill are compatible with the Convention rights, but the government nevertheless wishes the House to proceed with the bill. So she's saying, I can't tell you that this fits within the European Convention of Human Rights, but pass it anyway. Just go on, do it. Let's take a look at Braverman on Sky. Kay Burley asked her to address that point. Are you completely comfortable with breaking the law? We're not breaking the law, Kay. Uh uh, we are very confident that our measures that we've announced yesterday are in compliance with our international law obligations. Uh, but it's really important to know that we need to take action. The status quo is unacceptable. Uh, 45,000 people arrived here illegally, sometimes fatally, so last year, wasn't on small illegal. boats. wasn't illegal. It, it's breaking our laws to come here without a legal basis without permission and passing through a safe country where they should have and could have claimed asylum first. Let me tell first. you what Amnesty International say. They say the rights of migrants, refugees and asylum seekers are protected by international law regardless of how and why they arrive in a country. They have the same rights as everyone else plus special or specific protections. Um, as a barrister, you're condoning breaking the law according to Amnesty International. We're not breaking the law and uh, no government representative has said that we're breaking the law. In fact, we've made it very clear that we believe 
we're in compliance with all of our international obligations. For example, the Refugee Convention, the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, other, other uh, conventions to which we are subject. But what's important is that we do need to take uh, compassionate but necessary and fair measures now. We're not breaking the law. There's just an at least 50% chance we will be breaking the law in the near future. That's essentially what that amounts to. On that issue of international law, writer and barrister Chris Dorr gave this very clear explanation to Sky. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was passed in 1948 uh, after the Second World War. It specifically provides that nations must allow uh, refugees uh, or, or asylum seekers to apply for asylum. Uh, that was followed up by the 1951 uh, UN Convention on Refugees, which specifically states the following. Uh, asylum seekers are not required to apply in the first country uh, that they uh, reach. Uh, they are entitled to apply in any country, which is a signatory to the Convention. Uh, and they are not required to arrive in that country by uh, by lawful or regular means. There is specific provision that uh, asylum seekers are entitled to arrive by irregular means without documentation, because if you use any form of common sense, you'll realise that any genuine refugee is unlikely to have uh, proper documentation, uh, and therefore it's highly improbable that they will have any lawful route to apply, uh, to arrive in a country and then apply for asylum. Uh, they are, uh, as I say, uh, uh, governed by, also we're governed by the European Convention of Human Rights, which provides that anybody in the United Kingdom uh, is protected by due process of law cannot be imprisoned without a fair trial or any legal process. And I'm afraid this legislation breaks every single one of those fundamental pieces of human rights legislation, international law. And the irony of that is that the United Kingdom was the founding signatory of every single one of those documents. And it was involved in the creation of all of those basic human rights, unsurprisingly, because the United Kingdom was also the country which had, which sacrificed most and fought hardest against tyranny against the tyranny of the majority, which of course led to the deprivation of basic human rights uh, in Germany and, uh, and has done so in other countries around the world. So the United Kingdom has been historically at the forefront of protecting basic human rights. It's unimaginable from a legal point of view that you could detain someone without trial, without access to a lawyer, law, law, uh, to a lawyer, without access to the courts, and then and then deport them. I mean, it's just abominable from a human rights perspective and from an international legal perspective. We, the United Kingdom, will become an international human rights pariah if this legislation passes, comes into force, and is enacted in the way that it is. There is absolutely it's nothing about 50-50. There's no 50-50 about this. It is a hundred percent certain that this legislation breaches the un European Convention on Human Rights, and perhaps more importantly, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We're going to breach that knowingly in this country. It's a disgrace, and the government knows it's unlawful, and they know, frankly, it's the only way they're going to get votes at the next election. I wouldn't necessarily agree that for the past you know, 70 years, the UK has been a bastion of human rights around the world. Um, many of our foreign policy adventures have led to quite... A lot of human rights abuses, in fact. But, I mean, I take the point when it comes to the policies currently being proposed. And EU Commissioner for Home Affairs, Ilva Johansson, has also um, commented on the legality of the bill today. She told Politico, quote, I spoke to the British minister yesterday on this, and I told her that I think that this is violating international law. The illegal migration bill was a central topic in today's Prime Minister's questions. The SNP's Stephen Flynn asked whether, under the proposed law, a woman sex-trafficked by a small boat to the UK would receive any protection when she arrived. 
Prime Minister Rishi Sunak refused to answer. And that's when this happened. Mr Speaker, I'll take that as a yes from the Prime Minister that women who are the victims of sex trafficking will not be protected under our modern slavery laws. What a complete and utter disgrace, Mr Speaker. But whilst it may shock, it shouldn't necessarily surprise. Because this is the Tory government that in recent months has spoken of invasions. Just yesterday, this was the Tory government that said that 100 million people could be coming to these shows. And this is the Tory government that this morning said that number could in fact be billions. Complete and utter nonsense. So may I ask the Prime Minister, from whom are his government taking inspiration? Nigel Farage or Enoch Powell? And what a load of nonsense, Mr. Speaker. What a load of nonsense. No, the, in fact, the, the figure of 100 million, it doesn't come from the government. It comes from the United Nations, Mr. Speaker. And it illustrates the scale of the global migration crisis that the world is grappling with, which is why it is right that we take action, Mr. Speaker. Because if we do not, the numbers will continue to grow. They have more than quadrupled in just two years. It's a sign of what is to come, and our system will continue to be overwhelmed. And if that happens, we will not be able to help the people who are most in need of our support, our generosity, and our compassion. This has always been the way of this country. And once we get a grip of this system, that's who we can extend our support to. And that's why it's the right legislation. I'm joined now by Lou Calby, a specialist in asylum and refugee rights. Thank you so much for joining us on the show again. And I want to start on, on that issue of, of modern slavery. What does it mean when the government says no one arriving by boats will have protection under modern slavery laws? Honestly, Michael, I'm still in shock that this is where we are. I know we're here and, you know, the mood music's been here for some time. But from a sort of moral perspective i mean those graphics that went out last night on the the, the government social media feeds modern slavery um closed i think it's it's worth reminding ourselves that the current modern slavery guidance was actually developed by theresa may who you know is was uh, broadly accepted to be one of the most pernicious home secretaries towards um migrants and refugees of modern modern politics, what we're seeing now is them moving away from guidance that she implemented and doing away with it. That's something I I didn't think we'd ever see. I didn't think we'd ever see a Home Secretary so considerably worse towards migrants and, and refugees um, than than Theresa May. But going back to your question, what does it mean? Well, it essentially means that. Um, People arriving in small boats won't be able to access the national referral mechanism, which is the, the, the mechanism for identifying survivors of modern slavery. Um, at, at the moment, that mechanism recognises at around a 90% rate. Um, so 90% of people referred into that mechanism will be accepted as, as, as being survivors of slavery and, and trafficking. Um, so it, this isn't there's not a lot of slack in this system. This is not a system that's being abused. This is not a system that has a has a high failure rate, 90 percent, you know, a survival recognition rate. there. Um, but I think critically, the critical point with this is the signal that it sends to survivors of trafficking, people in trafficking and exploitation in the UK at the moment. You don't cross on small boats, present to the Home Office and say, hello, 
I'm the survivor of, of trafficking uh, and exploitation. What what you are, you you arrive into trafficking and exploitation typically, so that will continue for some time in the UK before you um, are de- detected or before you ask for help. So that there, there, there may there's first responders that may pick you up, that may detect you, or you may ask for help and, and approach one of those first responders. Um, that happens after some time in the UK. What we're currently saying right now to people that are in modern slavery right now, you are not going to get help from the UK. Don't ask for help. You're not going to get it. We're going to remove you. That's essentially the messaging. And that's the really worrying thing. Because to be honest, I think many of the proposals that are being announced are legally dubious at best, illegal. Um, but it's the messaging that it sends to people that are in these really awful situations right now. That's the really worrying thing. I suppose on that 90% point, so if I was someone who was you know, attuned to, or, or I was sympathetic to what Suella Bradman was saying, I might say, well, you've told me that 90% of claims are accepted. Um, maybe that just means the criteria is too broad. Maybe we're, we're, we're telling too many people that they have been um, a victim of modern slavery. And that's because you know, any, we, anything gets called modern slavery these days. I mean, what, what in practice are we talking about here? When would someone be found to have been a victim of, of, of modern slavery or trafficking? The guidance is complex, um, but it's a really grueling process. So um, usually there will be a, 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 a reasonable grounds decision. That's that's an initial decision that's that's issued by by uh, the government. So you would approach a first responder. They would look at some of the indicators um, of of modern slavery and trafficking. They would then refer you into the national referral mechanism. Government would then issue. And an initial reasonable grounds decision that sort of says on the case of it, on the surface of this case, there is there is reason to suspect that you're the survivor of, of, of trafficking. Um, they then go through a grueling investigation process. At the moment, that, that process should take a matter of weeks and months. At the moment, that process is taking years, as with everything to do with this government and the Home Office, everything's backlogged. Um, so that 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 system is now taking a year and a half in some cases, two years. Um, you're then issued with a conclusive grounds decision um, that concludes the process, and it's it that that as I said, that's running it around a ninety percent rate at the moment. So it, this isn't a brief process. This isn't all. Oh, let's have a quick look, and you know, yeah, let's see what's going on here. It's a, it's a grueling process, and and you're supported through the NRM to put your case together. So you'll be assigned representation. You should be placed into supported, safe accommodation away from any trafficking factors. Um, that should be sh- sheltered accommodation of some description. Um, and it, it's as I said, it was established principally under Theresa May. She's not known for being generous uh, to um, migrants and people forced to flee. Uh, so th- this is not this is a you know a, a a conservative party process that they implemented. It's certainly not without its issues. It's certainly not without its flaws and faults. But by no means is is this process an easy or gentle process for anyone concerned. 
Let's talk about safe routes. They've, they're playing a, a sort of interesting role in this debate because on the one hand, you've got the Tories saying we are interested in introducing some more safe routes. At the same time, they're now attacking Labour for wanting safe routes because they say this means that anyone in the world who wants to claim asylum will just get that safe route to the UK. Um, I suppose, can I ask you to talk about how, how safe routes work right now and what an expansion of safe routes could, could possibly look like? I'll talk about how safe routes were working um, before, before the last year or two. Um, so the principal safe route uh, is around refugee resettlement. This is in partnership with the United Nations. Um, as, as you said in your opening, um, uh, there's uh, many refugees in the world, not, not billions or millions, but 26 million. Um, and they will um, report, usually once they fled their home country, they'll report to UNHCR. UNHCR have field offices uh, th throughout the world. UNHCR will look at their case for protection. Who are they? What are they fleeing? What are their circumstances? So that might be that they're fle fleeing an objectively unsafe country, such as Afghanistan, for example. Or it may be that they're LGBT and fleeing an otherwise safe country, but because of their protected characteristics, they're specifically at risk. Uh, they have protected factors, and they, they target some protection risks around women, LGBT people, survivors of trafficking. Um, and they'll, so they'll look at that case, UNHCR, and then they will either accept them as priority need for resettlement, or they'll say, actually, we don't feel that you meet the threshold of the Refugee Convention. Once they're accepted, they'll be then put forward to a member state for resettlement in that state. That means that they will get documents, they will be able to travel in a safe way um, and arrive into safety in, in a planned and orderly way. Um, there's other safe routes such as family reunification um, and there's also a skilled worker pathways. So this is where you have um, particularly skilled workers that may be also fleeing a refugee situation, forced to flee, and we have correlating um, vacancies within certain sectors, so you may get work visas. You still have, uh, it's worth acknowledging that, that some many of those people are still being forced to flee, but they're coming in as skilled workers. So there's your principal protection routes as resettlement, and then you've got a variety of complementary pathways there. In the last year or two, they've pretty much been not functioning. To give you an idea of context, in the last year, we resettled just over 1,000 people. That's 1,000 humans being resettled into the UK. Uh, previously, pre-pandemic, we were doing around 6,000 a year. So that, that's a massive drop. It's a massive drop in resettlement, um, it, 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 quite, quite startling. And if you take it down to the individual um, nationality groups, for example, if you take um, people from Afghanistan, uh, they, they've um, lauded some of their refugee resettlement routes for, for Afghan nationals. 8,600 Afghan nationals crossed in small boats in 2022. Um, and we accepted 22 people from Afghanistan on the UNHCR referral pathway uh, for Afghan nationals, just 22. There's a third pathway where we accepted zero people. So it's quite clear when you just look at that nationality group um, why we say 
start the conversation with safe routes. It has to start with safe routes because I would say it's disingenuous to say that as soon as you see an uplift in resettlement and you see an uplift in safe routes, then that will stop the small boats. It's not that straightforward. And I, I don't want to mislead people. Um, but it's certainly a massive factor. What I think is happening at the moment is government rhetoric is painting safe routes as open borders. Um, it's not. I understand that we live in a country that wants border control. I have personal views around that, but that, that's not why I'm here. I understand that we have, live in a country that wants, majority wants border control. You can't have border control without safe routes. Um, not having safe routes isn't border control. Not having safe routes is closed borders. It's a closed border regime. And I would argue that that's what we're living in in the UK at the moment. When you have a closed border regime, you will inevitably have irregular crossings, irregular border crossings. It's a symptom of a closed border regime. And I would argue the reason that we're having more irregular crossings is because there are no regularised routes. It stands to reason. I don't think you need to be a refugee or migration expert to see that. You can't change the global dynamic of people being forced to flee. There are people in that need to be in the UK because they have friends and family here. They want to rebuild their lives here. If you're not going to give them a safe route, they will still travel because they don't have many other options. Um, and, and I think that's the dynamic we're in at the moment. But as I said, the government rhetoric is safe routes equals open borders. And actually, it's completely the opposite. Lou Cowie, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Always incredibly insightful. That 1,000 figure is just so shocking. It just makes you, I mean, I, I, I talk about it all the time on the show, how pathetic this country is when it comes to refugees and asylum. We, we, we can't possibly take more than we're currently taking. We're a country of 67 million people. And as it's just been explained, we resettled a thousand people, right? And you, you always see the, the government say, we have a proud record. We're a very compassionate country. We're resettling all of these people from these wars. A thousand people. It, it's just so, so pathetic. Next story, which is on a similar theme. There are a lot of people chatting breeze about refugees on our TV screens at the moment. My colleague, Dahlia Gabriel, isn't one of them. Here she is on Politics Live. When you set up safe routes to migration, people will not choose to take risky um, journeys. Britain likes to think of itself as a country that's all about rule of law and everyone getting a fair hearing. I think today we can say that that is clearly not the case. This bill is about en masse denying people's asylum claims without them even getting a fair hearing. And I'm particularly concerned that potential victims of modern slavery, of human trafficking, which the government says it's so concerned about, will, because of this bill, not be able to seek the meagre support that, that victims of modern slavery have because they may have arrived on boat. And I just want to finish with this. The 1951 Refugee Convention, which Britain has now abandoned, um, was established in the wake of the Second World War, when the, the world looked with shame at how many people who were fleeing uh, Nazi Germany mm -hmm. had doors shut in their face, how many lives could have been saved if we, were, if we had a welcoming attitude towards refugees. History does not look kindly on countries that treat refugees in this way. I am deeply ashamed and I have no problem saying that this is an incredibly immoral and duplicitous bill. Alex? 
I'm so fed up of hearing the term safe and legal routes banded about by anybody who wants to make themselves feel better. Because actually, when you look at this on the surface of it, about two thirds of countries around the world outlaw homosexuality in some way. 7.8 billion people live in extreme poverty. 14 countries right now are embroiled in some sort of civil conflict, war, terrorist mm. insurgency and instability. So if you say we need safe and legal routes for anybody who's fleeing something, you're talking about overwhelming high commissions and embassies with the majority of the global population. So it's all very well saying this, but no one actually seems to have a discerning plan of how this is going to be a discriminatory system where you decide who can come and who can't. And frankly, what, what the government are doing now, what the government what are doing now is like? vital. Because listen, I do think that we do need international conventions on things such as the treatment of refugees. That convention, as you were saying, is about 70 years old. It is no longer fit for purpose because what we didn't have back then was this unprecedented mass exodus of people from all corners of the world being exploited by ruthless criminal gangs whose trafficking of human cargo goes on to fund terrorism, to drugs cartels. This does need to be broken. I don't think there's a more duplicitous move than saying banning refugees and asylum seekers from coming to our country is actually helping them because it's stopping them being trafficked. You know, some people are trafficked. Some people are trafficked into modern slavery. Most people who are coming to Britain via channel boats, yes, not the ideal way to come here, but there are no other ways to come here for most people. They are coming here of their own free will because they are fleeing persecution. And that idea that oh, we, we can't we can't do this. This might have been possible in the 50s. We can't do this now because now we've got millions of people fleeing. The, the reason the Refugee Convention was introduced is because millions of people were fleeing Germany during the Second World War. Like lots and lots of Jews were fleeing um, Eastern Europe during the war. And guess what? We turned a lot of them away. And so a lot of them were forced to go back to Germany or go back to Poland or Eastern European countries and essentially die in the Holocaust, right? So the reason that was introduced as a piece of international law was precisely for a situation when there are millions of people fleeing poverty. So you can't, you can't say, oh, we're in a different situation now. No, it's, it's actually very similar. Um, also worth noting, lots of people struggling with numbers. Um, Suella Bravman for. 2 billion people want to come to the UK, a quarter of the world's population. Um, that contributor thought that 7.8 billion people are in extreme poverty, which is everyone. That would be everyone in the world is, is now in extreme poverty, um, according to that ex-Brexit party candidate. One thing I always find so odd in these spaces is how difficult it is to communicate just on a purely human level what is wrong with this legislation. You know, you have to kind of go into these technicalities. You have to go into oh, you know, how is the Home Office not doing, not, not doing good on its, on its um, commitments? Or like, how is the Home Office being hypocritical? But actually, you know, the idea that your life doesn't end just because you are displaced, that if you have to seek asylum, that doesn't mean that you don't have a right to have any autonomy in your life. And this is what we see when people talk about oh, you know, they should stay in this first safe country um, that they arrive to. It basically says that because you have become displaced, you don't have a right in any way to determine your future. So even if you know that you have the best chance of doing what everyone wants to do, which is to live your potential, to live a meaningful life, to live in community with one another, if you feel like Britain is the place that you have the best shot of doing that, for example, maybe you speak English because of, you know, the history of the British Empire. Maybe there is already an established community or you have family or friends here. 
Or maybe you served in the British military, for example, if you're um, from Afghanistan, that might be the case. You have a right to not just want to survive. You have a right to also want to thrive. And I think that this idea that it feels it feels so difficult to communicate that humanity in these spaces. You know, we there was a Labour MP there, Lloyd Russell Moyle, who generally uh, is, you know, definitely not as bad as Labour MPs can get. But even he found it difficult. You know, that I think he felt like it would be a liability if he tried to make a moral or human case and instead had to go into the kind of technicality angle. It's a worrying indictment. Of, of where we're at, that essentially we don't see refugees and people seeking asylum as human beings like us who want the same things that human being that all humans being human beings want, which is to thrive and flourish, not just to survive, you know, just about. Um, which is what again this this uh, bill is going to do. It's going to put thousands of people in limbo, in detention, um, with no prospect of even having their case heard if they come through. Um, on a boat, which, by the way, there are now, you know, the government has now shut off um, the the safe and legal routes that were available to Afghans. So now only if you are a Ukrainian asylum seeker, do you have access to a safe and legal route. Next story. The three candidates for next SNP leader have met in their first televised debate, and it was brutal. And that was partly because of the format, which included candidates cross-examining each other. This is Kate Forbes, Hamza Youssef and Ash Reagan going at each other on STV. Hamza, you've had a number of jobs in government. When you were transport minister, the trains were never on time. When you were justice minister, the police were strained to breaking point. And now as health minister, we've got record high waiting times. What makes you think you can do a better job as first minister? On at least two occasions during the hustings, and then you repeated it again this evening, you said that you're not as smart as Nicola Sturgeon, and if there was a way to be found, she would have found it. So why do you think that you can succeed where she's failed? The question for me is, who do our opponents fear? I believe I'm the candidate that our opponents fear with the plan that our opponents most fear. I think the person that their opponents would fear is the person that has a plan to get independence. You say you're the only candidate that can persuade people who voted no. In the first week of your campaign, you had people who voted leave, uh, voted yes, leave your campaign. MSP after MSP. You've had many people, particularly from our LGBTQ community, say they won't vote for independence if you're the leader. Forget persuading no voters. You can't even keep yes voters and on site. Gives- so after you've ripped up the deal with the Greens... I haven't said that I would uh, rip up the yes, deal Yes, you said Greens. you've no, made it pretty clear that you wouldn't work with the Greens. They've so said once, that they wouldn't if you work let me with finish me. Your question, if you let me finish my question. So you've said that you would reject uh, the Greens. Uh, when you do that, and it comes to passing your first budget, who will you cut a deal with first? Douglas Ross or Anna Sauer? One in four children are in poverty, as I've already said. What's your plan to reduce that? And do you not think it's an outrage? It absolutely is an outrage. And that's why I cannot stand here and tell the people in the SNP to keep voting for us and voting for us and voting for us with no plan for independence in sight. <laughs> Literally, candidate for SNP leader. But part of this been, but obviously they don't have complete power, right? Because they don't have um, the same kind of tax raising powers that, that Westminster has. So, so when it, it is duplicitous when you get Tories in Westminster saying they've destroyed the NHS because you know the state of the Scottish NHS has a lot to do with funding decisions made in Westminster. But to see these leadership candidates basically say, "Why should anyone from the SNP vote for us?" My favourite one there was, um, "You've said you weren't." You, you, you won't continue with the coalition with the Greens. She's like, no, I haven't. They've said they won't continue with the coalition with me. It's like, that's, that doesn't make you sound particularly amazing either. Very, very um, risky 
one one could say for for the SNP to be airing all of this dirty laundry in public. You've you've literally got the finance minister telling someone else when you were in charge of transport, the trains didn't run on time. You're now in charge of the NHS, and everything's a complete mess. This is the the finance minister, the equivalent of the the, the chancellor in Scotland, basically telling her cabinet colleagues that the government they're all part of is absolutely rubbish. Media reactions to the debate were pretty uniform. The Scotsman ran with this. SNP leadership contest. Nicola Sturgeon says she did not watch brutal SNP leadership TV debate. Potentially, that was a good call from her. Couldn't have been too relaxing watching that. Meanwhile, the right-wing Scottish Daily Express had this. SNP torched themselves and their record during bare-knuckle brawl televised debate. And Scotland's first pro-independence newspaper, The National, said this. SNP activists say damage done to party after first TV debate. Dahlia, it's, it's interesting. The SNP are actually still incredibly popular, right? By a long way, the most popular party in Scotland. People generally quite satisfied um, with, with with the government in Holyrood. And now you've got these three candidates like ripping each other to shreds. I mean, it's, it sounds like the kind of leadership debate you'd have if you'd just lost a historic election, not when you're like in in government and relatively popular. Like, well, what's going on? I cannot believe that a debate in that format was allowed to go ahead because no candidate benefits from that. Like I, like they could have easily, all of them said, we're obviously not going to do that because it's going to produce exactly what it did produce, which is the perfect attack lines. Their opponents, honestly, it's like the political judgment is unbelievable, you know, and, and no one likes to feel like they're governed by a party that is in turmoil. I mean, those of us, um, you know, it's sitting in England can absolutely say that it's it's completely it's a complete shit show um, to 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 have you know a a governing party that can't deliver on the basic functions of government because they are too busy trying to resolve these internal crises. Um, so honestly, like that debate format was an absolutely terrible judgment call, um, and I don't understand how that was allowed to go ahead. That was a complete liability. For, for the SNP as a party. Um, and it also really makes me wonder like how Nicola Sturgeon was holding this whole thing together. You know, this might be kind of my my England centrism uh, speaking and, you know, don't I apologize for that. I'm, I hate it too. Um, but I, from the outside, it really looked like the SNP were quite a cohesive power block. That wouldn't mean obviously that there weren't disagreements or like different factions within the party. But it certainly looked like a bit more of a unified political force than appears than it appeared in those in those um, clips. And it makes me wonder why Nicola, you know, we still don't have a full answer really on why Nicola Sturgeon decided to leave and especially why she decided to leave so abruptly. And whilst probably knowing that this giant can of worms was going to be uh, was going to be opened. So Either way, I mean, it feels like the SNP are kind of squandering what was a really, you know, a kind of political majority that most parties would dream of. Uh, and I'm not really sure why they're doing it, really. I was trying to think of what the advantage of this possibly could be. I mean, it, it might be the case that this was sort of, you know, the, the TV station wanted an entertaining debate and the SNP kind of went along with it. Um, but I suppose the advantage of having a debate format which is that brutal where you cross-examine each other is that while in the short term potentially, well, I mean, in the short term, obviously, it gives the opposition parties a lot of material to work with. Maybe by the time an election comes around, because you've aired all your dirty laundry in public, you you know that the candidate that comes through a race that brutal is going to have relatively thick skin. 
I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it's worth it uh, to, 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 to find out that you've got a, a candidate who can, you know, defend themselves in a strong way. But that, that's the only defense I can, I can think of for, for deciding that was a good idea. Next story. Gary Lineker has a habit of boiling right-wingers' piss, and he's done it again. The Match of the Day host tweeted this in response to Suella Braverman's new migration bill. There is no huge influx. We take far fewer refugees than other major European countries. This is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. And I'm out of order. So that's the reply to someone in a tweet thread. But it's that comparison between the language used in the 1930s that caused a really, really big row. A stream of Tory MPs, as you can imagine, tweeted their outrage. And it made the front page of two Tory papers. So the Daily Mail went with Lineker faces BBC rebuke for likening small boats planned to Nazis. Importantly, he likened the language to that of the Nazis, not actually the policy. We also have one from the Daily Telegraph. BBC urged to sack Lineker after Nazi migrant jibe. Now, given he's a very popular host of one of the BBC's most popular shows, I think that would be somewhat unlikely. Suella Bravman herself was asked for her response on the morning media round. This is what she told BBC Breakfast. I'm disappointed, obviously. Uh, I think it's uh, unhelpful to compare our measures, which are lawful, proportionate and indeed compassionate to uh, 1930s Germany. I also think that we're on the side of the British people here. Uh, it's plain for anyone to see that the British people have had enough of this situation of thousands of people coming here illegally at huge cost to the taxpayer and undermining our laws and in fact the British generosity. That needs to stop. We need to take necessary steps now to ensure that if you're coming here illegally you'll be detained and you'll be removed and that's what this bill will do. British generosity of course amounts to allowing uh, a relatively very small number of refugees and asylum to settle here compared to other comparable countries, and then deciding that it's too overwhelming and we're going to have to rip up a refugee convention from 70 years ago. Right? So that, that, that's how compassionate we are, or how compassionate Suella Bravman wants us to be. Gary Lineker has apparently been spoken to by BBC bosses, but has refused to delete the original tweet and seems pretty defiant, saying this. I have never known such love and support in my life than I'm getting this morning. England World Cup goals aside, possibly. I want to thank each and every one of you. It means a lot. I'll continue to try and speak up for those poor souls that have no voice. Cheers, all. Dahlia, what's your take on the Gary Lineker, Suella Bravman, BBC bosses row? It really does show sort of how far right we've been dragged that Gary Lineker is being considered somehow beyond the pale. You know, Gary Lineker is a pretty... Uh, as far as I can see, inoffensive character. It's really unclear to me what the problem is here. I don't understand how this violates BBC impartiality rules. He's not declaring support for a particular party. He's having an opinion on a policy, which last time I checked, as you know, the, a citizen of an allegedly free country, he should be able to, to have that right. Is it the problem that it's seen to be distasteful uh, that he is drawing comparisons between the way in which refugees are being treated here and, you know, the kind of language that was used to describe uh, internal others, used to describe people who are otherized uh, in Nazi Germany. It's actually fairly uncontroversial. A lot of um, historians of genocide and historians of fascism have long been warning that the dehumanizing way in which uh, refugees and migrants are being treated both in political discourse and in media discourse is 
akin to the language that late paved the way um, for some of the atrocities that we saw in Nazi Germany. In particular, what we're talking about here um, is the suspension of legal norms for particular groups of people after a long process of dehumanizing those people, of, you know, um, of, of demonizing and isolating this idea of a particular group of people that are threatening the nation and creating, you know, overinflated ideas of threat, and then using that as a precursor to suspend legal norms um, for that group of people. That is exactly what is happening here. This bill is about suspending norms that have been in place for 70 years, which is that everyone has the right to have their asylum case heard in a country of their choice. That is what is now being suspended for particular groups of people. So people who are traveling by boat, and which basically means anyone who's not, as we previously mentioned, um, Ukrainian. So it's actually entirely uncontroversial um, what Gary Lineker is saying. I can't see why there's any legitimate reason why the BBC would be giving him a stern talking to. This is not the first time that a BBC staff member has expressed an opinion online. Um, so I really do think that this is about kind of disciplining what public figures can say when it comes to criticizing particular policies that are deployed um, by this government. I'm going to finish by by saying this. People like to clutch their pearls about these comparisons to, to Nazi Germany and these comparisons and kind of really bringing home the, the serious consequences that this bill has for our civil liberties. Um, one thing that, and human rights more broadly, and, you know, one thing that Tony Benn said that I think is really profound here is this idea that you should always keep an eye on what on how governments are treating refugees because it's how they would treat you um, if they thought they could get away with it. And this is where I think it's really important that we contextualize how this isn't just about what's happening to refugees now, even though that is inc it's incredibly egregious, it's incredibly worrying, we need to fight it with everything we've got. But also that more of, that this is about a broader decline in respect for legal norms, in civil liberties and human rights. And we see it in, you know, the government passing um, deeply authoritarian laws. You know, the Council of European Trade Unions came out and said that if the minimum service um, levels bill is passed, which the government has been trying to pass, that means that Britain would have some of the most authoritarian anti-union policies, certainly in Europe and even comparably within the world. We have this broader decline of, of legal norms and human rights that is incredibly worrying. Um, and it is impacting refugees the hardest and the, the, the fastest, but it is ultimately a norm that is, is coming for all of us. So Gary Lineker is completely right to be ringing the alarm on this, on this topic. There's a tweet that's been going around today is, is from Gary Lineker in 2017 um, from the April the 19th, 2017, when he tweeted Bin Corbyn. And this was a couple of months before Labour had their surprisingly good um, election, which they nearly won. Um, so people are sharing this to sort of say, well, Gary Lineker, classic example of one of these wealthy liberals who doesn't like um, right-wing rhetoric when it comes from the Conservatives, but when there was a party leader who was unashamedly pro-refugee and was you know, willing to say so, um, you know, they actively uh, sort of said nasty things about them. The other point to make about this is I don't remember the front page of any newspapers saying that Gary Lineker should be sacked because he said that the leader of the opposition should be binned, right? That, that to me seems much more political 
or much more party political than saying that a refugee policy seems to be pretty heartless, right? But, but as ever, any questions about impartiality when it was all directed at Corbyn, no one in the establishment cared about. If it's ever directed at the Tories, suddenly, oh my God, this person has to lose their job. The, the whole notion of impartiality is, is, is defunct. These liberal intelligentsia blobs, they are going to sort of start some civil war between Remainers and Brexiteers, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> we all know the real issue with impartiality is when it comes to someone who is actually fundamentally outside of the establishment, fundamentally is opposed to vested interests in this country. So Ella Bradman isn't that, by the way. She's nasty, but she's not that, which means that you do um, get some wealthy liberals who are willing to say she's rubbish, and you also get some wealthy people who are willing to let her go by her business. Um, yeah, not, not pleasant. But yeah, I mean, obviously, in this instance, I'm with Gary Lineker. Final story. Lewis Goodall was one of the BBC's most engaging up-and-coming journalists. But last year, he left the organisation to join Global, where he co-hosts the News Agents podcast, and that's with two other ex-BBC hosts. In a conversation about impartiality, he told this story. It's pretty revealing. When I was at the BBC, Robbie Gibb, you know, made my life really difficult day after Robbie day. Gibb is the former director of communications for Theresa May, yeah. who then went to be on the board of, of the, the BBC. BBC. Former communications. And also helped found a rival broadcaster, <laughs> GB News. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not really talked about this before, he made my life really, really hard at the BBC. You know, day after day, I would hear from people saying, uh, you know, just watch it. Robbie's watching you. Now, you know, because they had created this sort of confection that somehow I was sort of Labour supporting or, you know, doing Labour stuff. You know, my by comparison to R Robbie Gibb, my sort of grand summit within the Labour Party was, you know, vice chair of Birmingham Northfield CLP and youth officer when I was 17 years old. And I'm sitting there going, hang on a minute, I'm being lectured about impartiality from a man who until checks notes like 12 months ago was literally head of comms in Downing Street. I mean, very revealing story. So you've got someone who, I mean, it wasn't mentioned there, but who was head of um, political programming for the BBC, Robbie Gibb, who then goes on to be head of comms for Theresa May, and then goes on to be on the board of the BBC. And then you've got one journalist who is, you know, delivers pretty, you know, uh, I suppose you could say, successful or impactful scrutiny on a conservative government. And then he's telling everyone that this guy's, you know, in trouble, he needs to be careful, he needs to stop doing such interesting journalism. I'm also thinking about uh, Allegra Stratton, who went from being a BBC journalist to being the speak. Well, I don't know what the word is. Um, the kind of speaker for spokesperson for the Conservative Party. So, yeah, I mean, there is a an absolutely a revolving uh, a revolving door. And I think for me, the problem with BBC impartiality has always been that I've never really understood what it meant. You know, I could understand what it meant in a sort of technical basis on the sense that, okay, you have, you know, if you have a debate um, or if you have a topic being discussed, you need to have both sides represented. So you need to have, you know, one person from each party or one person from each side of a, of a, of a debate. That in itself is kind of limiting because particularly if you're talking about topics um, and, you know, different positions on those topics rather than party positions, oftentimes there are more than two sides, right? So you're always kind of missing out one, one angle. Um, but I never really, so I could understand what, what, what impartiality means in a meaningful sense on that kind of technical level. But in terms of the kind of broader ideological apparatus of the BBC and, you know, where do people in key positions of power cleave towards, 
I've never understood how you can kind of achieve that. Um, because ultimately, you know, you have editors and editors make choices and those choices reflect their networks and ideological framework to some extent. You know, some are better at disciplining that than others. Um, and because the people who are in the BBC, particularly now, because, you know, our media industry is so unrepresentative and so lacking in diversity, um, the people who occupy those key positions in the BBC broadly reflect our elites more so than um, you know, regular people, you know, the vast majority of them went to private school compared to, you know, the very, a very minority within within the British population. So it doesn't surprise me that in reality, you know, the ideological cleave of the BBC when it comes to when it comes to who actually has overruling editorial power, that it cleaves towards the establishment. Um, and so when it comes, so what I tend to see, and we saw it with the Gary Lineker story, you know, how he was treated very differently when he was saying Corbyn out versus when he's criticizing a conservative party policy, that impartiality tends to become a stick that is used to discipline anyone in the organization that is seen to have slight sympathies towards, you know, left wing uh, views or is used to kind of, it's used as a stick essentially to beat the left with. Um, and because it, it you have this idea of impartiality without a critical understanding of how the overrepresentation of elites within the BBC makes it really difficult to achieve that in 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 reality. So I'm not at all. And um, what does surprise me is that the Conservatives are constantly going after the BBC and demonising it. Not under, not not sure why, seeing as the BBC has historically um, been quite an important part of its of its you know. Um, of, of it getting he hege hegemony. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's it's re a really interesting anecdote there from Lewis Goodall that illustrates a more a broader point. And I do think that despite the kind of historical context that I've given there, that the, the revolving door, if we're going to think about it as a revolving door between the Conservative Party and the BBC, you know, we can definitely say that in, in recent years, the, the hinges of that door have been very lubricated. So it has kind of gotten more explicitly worse. Um, but it's always kind of been a bit of an, an issue in the BBC, I would say. Yeah, I'd say the way you sort of square the circle of, of, of this idea that the BBC is both, you know, helpful for the Tories and they attack it is they attack it to make it more helpful for them. So, so I think the idea is, you know, the Tories are constantly putting pressure on the politics team in the BBC or any team to say, if you are too critical of us, we will cut your funding, essentially. So I don't think their ultimate aim is to destroy the BBC. The aim is to keep the BBC on their toes so that they aren't critical of the government, which which I think is probably um, what was going on there when it came to Robbie Gibb constantly uh, spreading rumours that, you know... Potentially, Lewis Goodall's time was up, and the, the intention there was to try and get the guy to do less critical work on the BBC. But eventually, what ultimately happened is he decided, "I can't really do the work I want to do at the BBC," so went and started working for for Global, and now has a very successful podcast with two other BBC journalists that decided to leave the platform. Um, let's wrap up. Thank you, Dahlia, for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me, Michael. And thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.